Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. It may not be simple to become more Christ-like, but it also doesn't have to be so complicated. Daryl Dash is a pastor, a church planter, and an author of How to Grow, and his most recent book, Eight Habits for Growth, A Simple Guide to Becoming More Like Christ. We talk about a few of those habits in this podcast, and we spend a bit of time talking about church and why going is so important. I'm Karen Stiller, and I really appreciate it what Daryl says about what makes a church good. I think you will too. And if you do, please share it. So Daryl, I would like to start out by asking you about the subtitle of your new book, A Simple Guide to Becoming More Like Christ. Simple? It feels like it's supposed to be difficult to become more like Christ. So I wanted to start there and have you explain that. Yeah, I was thinking about that yesterday, actually. Simple doesn't mean easy. I think it's still hard. But it is, it is actually simple. It's not that complicated. I know a lot of books make promises they can't keep, and I don't want to promise that it's completely simple, but really it is, like the basics are actually fairly simple. And when you boil it down, there are certain behaviors that when we do, God just seems to, I don't know why, but they put us in the path of grace and God seems to meet us there. And they're just the simple things. They're not really advanced things, but I don't know about you, Karen. I find that I struggle with doing simple things repeatedly, right? Sometimes I think we look for extraordinary things, and it's actually fairly ordinary, humble things that we're called to do that are pretty simple, and yet God seems to use those to grow us. So yeah, I don't want to overpromise. They're hard things, but they're actually pretty simple things. So how do you know, Daryl, and this is this is probably my last hard question, how <laughs> do you know if you're growing spiritually? How can you tell? I think the irony is you don't. I think other people see it in you, and that's why we need other people to recognize it. What I find is when we're growing spiritually, we're the last people who know. Charlene is, has been saying recently about uh, what a great sinner she is. And I keep looking at her and thinking, what are you talking about? You're one of the most loving people I know. I live with you. I think I know you better than anybody. And I see you growing in love and maturity and just all the markers of godliness. But the irony is, I forget who said it the first time, some great thinker. So it's not an original thought. But the closer you become to God, the more you see your faults and your sins. So ironically, I think the more you grow spiritually, the more aware you are of your sin and the less you you actually think you're growing in godliness. So yeah, I think it takes other people to reflect back to you that, you know, your humility and your awareness of your sin is actually a marker of spiritual growth. So there is a real irony there. Yeah, and there's something in there for me about spiritual friendship. I mean, you're talking about your wife, Charlene, and clearly our spouses see us pretty clearly, and good friends do too. But how important are other people in our own spiritual growth then? Oh, they're so important. The other week I had an embar- one of those embarrassing incidents, right, where my fly was down. <laughs> I was oh, setting no. up church. And so somebody, fortunately, it was before I saw too many people, but a friend whispered to me, your fly's down. And I was able to rectify that. And without him, I would have gone the whole evening without being aware of that, right? We've all had that experience of there's spinach in our teeth or, or yeah. we're eating and we don't know that unless somebody loves us enough to point that out, which is a mercy, right? It doesn't seem like it, but we need people to point out you know, you don't know this, but I see this in you. 
And the, the other thing is positively, I, I just started reading a book that came out this week. It's not a Christian book, but it was on the power of affirming others. And somebody just said, you know, I'm going to affirm people and see what their reaction is. And they came up with a scientific study to measure the impact of that. And the author was reporting afterwards, man, the power of affirming people, we have no idea how powerful it is to say to somebody, I see this in you. Uh, so yeah, it's it's so crucial. Uh, I think we desperately need spiritual friendship. And obviously the church is a big part of that. Yeah, I like that thought. And to get back to your spinach and the teeth example, when I have had people point out, you know, something like that with me, I feel like I can trust you. And sometimes I've said that back to them. Oh, now I know I can trust you because you're, you know, kind of you have my back. And I mean, I think it's not as easy to say that when they say, I think you're really selfish or something. <laughs> Something that's less positive in terms of the feedback, but we need people to tell us the truth, don't we? Yeah. And, you know, the irony, the people who do it really well, they love us. Yes. And you can tell, I mean, there's some people who are critics and they're cranks and they don't really leave us feeling built up. But I think there's a way of not rebuking, it sounds too harsh, but really helping each other see our blind spots in a way that leaves us feeling more loved. Yeah. So, you know, those quadrant diagrams, I really love the whole idea of on one grid, truthful and untruthful, and then the other grid, helpful and unhelpful. And there's three quadrants where it's not good, um, but there's that quadrant of being, I'm being truthful with you and I'm being helpful at the same time, loving and helpful. And that's what we ought to aim for, right? Hearing the truth, but hearing it in a really loving way that leaves us feeling affirmed and built up, even though we're maybe being exposed to truth, we'd rather not hear sometimes. Yeah, that's really good. So your book is built around eight habits, eight habits for growth. And I would love for us to maybe touch on a few of them. And I wanted to ask about church. So let's jump to that one, because habit number five in your book is worship and belong. And I, I'm thinking about this time now in our country with COVID and all the ups and downs and churches have responded in different ways. And I think everybody, what we have in common is everybody wants to regather again. You're a pastor and a church planter. So I'd, I'd love to hear how you are approaching encouraging people to come back who have been maybe perfectly comfortable with online worship. And why is it important to be in person? You know, just last week, I a part of my sermon, I talked about the need to be back together in person and where we are. We're not that it's not that controversial. I feel grateful for that because everybody in our church seems unified in basically being cautious. And I know that's not everybody's context, but that's my context. But I, I said, you know, I understand some of you might not be there yet, but we need to get there. And if you're not there, you know, and. Karen, I struggle with this. Um, there's a pastor I really respect that says, talks about making church a non-pressurized environment where there's plenty of time to allow people to struggle. And as a pastor, I always want to kind of harangue people and create pressure so that they do what I want to do. But I try not to do that. I try to create space where people can struggle and where they're not being guilted into doing something. So last week I said, look, I just understand it's going to be hard for some of you. Some of you aren't there yet. You might not be for a while. As long as you know that we need to get to the point where we're regathering again. I just believe that there's something that happens when we're in the same room together that doesn't happen through technology. I'm grateful for 
technology. I'm so glad we've had it, but it isn't the same thing. I think of my wife when I traveled to England. Uh, my dad lived in England. I would phone her, but both of us were really clear it was a blessing, but it wasn't the same as being in the same room. And so I think we can be grateful for it and yet recognize we really need to be together. And yeah, it's so important. I think that every Christian needs to say, yeah, it might not be yet, but we need to set our sights on regathering as soon as humanly possible. But so many people don't attend a church or, and, you know, not moving past COVID now, or they have been hurt and they just said, that's it. I'm done with the church. Probably you can name you know, a hundred people like that. I'm at a point in my life where I can name several really surprising people who I never thought would, you know, drop out of church, but they just seem so fed up with it. So not just millennials, but boomers and all the other letters. <laughs> um, talk to me about that. Why do you think that has happened? And why is it so important for us to uh, make our way back if we can? And what can churches do? There, solve everything, Daryl. <laughs> I went through a period where I was a pastor and became very disillusioned with the church. And now I look back and I realize, man, I was, I think I was hurt. And I was trying to process my hurt very uncomfortably while I was within the church. And I went through, I would say, probably a close to 10 year period of disillusionment with the church. So I get it. I get the church is not comfortable, it is broken. You just have to listen to a podcast like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which everybody seems to be listening to, to realize there's a lot wrong with the church. The thing that brought me out of that period, you know, it was interesting because um, I, I think I was struggling with cynicism. And it wasn't just in the area of church, but in a few different areas. And something changed. I think, number one, I got in a healthier context. So I think there is a time to realize maybe there is a time to leave a particular church I think we need to do it carefully and cautiously, not just because we don't like the music or somebody ticked us off, but if it really is not a healthy place. And I mean, again, I hate to use the illustration of a marriage. I think there was a period where I was really critical of Charlene. And when I got into that period, I realized the problem was never her. The problem was with me. And I began to appreciate the marriage a whole lot more once I began to see the gift that Charlene was. And I think the same thing is true within church. If you have a fairly healthy and imperfect, but fairly healthy church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about being a critic of God's people and kind of the dynamic that that sets up. It's in his classic book, Life Together. Uh, when we become a critic of God's people, that probably reflects a bit of an issue within us. When we become lovers of God's people, still recognizing their flaws, but realizing that it's still a gift. And I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, last Sunday, just saying, man, everybody who's part of a Christian community, when they realize what they've been given, they ought to immediately get on their knees and bow and thank God for the incredible privilege they have, because it is amazing. So yeah, I think, Karen, I don't have the answer, except I've been disillusioned. And I like being where Dietrich Bonhoeffer says we should all be a whole lot better. Man, when you realize what a blessing being your book, The Minister's Wife, is so good in talking about, you know, what a, a funny group of people the church can be. And yet it's an amazing gift. And when we see the gift in, you know, the people who are singing off key and the people who drive us crazy and and the sermons that are boring, it's still a gift. Something transformative happens when we accept that gift and really begin to appreciate it. 
Yeah, I can attest to the, um, because you are a pastor and I'm married to one. And so there's like, I guess, an obligation of attendance, a discipline of belonging that I feel. And that has given me, I think, the conviction that church really is important. And sometimes it's because it's hard. But of course, we don't only grow through hard things, right? No, that's right. Well, and that's the thing. Church, it can be as maddening as it is. It's not always hard, right? There is those times when, yeah, it is exactly what we needed. Yeah. Uh, Colin Hansen and uh, Jonathan Lehman just wrote a book called Rediscover Church. And part of the book really stuck with me. It said, just show up. And so much of the, you know, I remember in school, somebody, a professor told me 80%, I think it's a Woody Allen quote, 80% of success is just showing up. And that whole thing with church, they write in the book, um, Lehman and, and Hansen, just show up. Almost everything you need in the Christian life will come as you just show up faithfully in the life of a church. Now, you can do it at a surface level and it will make a difference. But if you really do plug in, almost everything in the Christian life will flow automatically out of that. So it's almost that simple of just showing up and expecting God to do something as you do show up. Yeah. So what makes a good church? You you deal with that really well in the book, but I'd love for our listeners to hear you uh, help us understand that. In my mind, a good church, and I thought about this a lot because, um, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't, in a way, <laughs> I'm spoiled, right? Um, but I often think about what does a good church look like if I had to begin to look for one? And it's things like this. It's it's first, it's it's more about Jesus than it is about the church that there's just this relentless focus on Jesus. Karen, I have this amazing experience. Uh, when I go to churches, I begin as a critic, you know, like, oh, how are they doing this? And um, what's the preacher like? And what can I learn from his style? And about 10 minutes into the service, I forget that because I begin to worship and the minister begins to preach and I forget critiquing. And I'm just like, man, I needed to hear this today. I needed to see Jesus today. So uh, first, a relentless focus on Jesus and then second, I think, is healthy leadership. And by healthy, I don't mean perfect leadership, but I really think it's important to have leaders who have good character. You know, it's uh, it's so telling that in the Bible, it's mainly about character qualities when they talk about what a good leader is, what a good pastor is. I want a leader who's humble, who's aware of their own brokenness and their mess, I would say if you're in a, a church where you really have questions about the leader's character and they're significant questions, just not like they're imperfect, but you really sense a gap in their integrity, you need to take that seriously and pray about what to do about that. But that's a big deal, right? So focus on Jesus. Secondly, healthy leadership. And then third, I, I, healthy culture. So last week I preached on Psalm 133 and it talks about how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And we know that refers to men and women, right? It's just what an amazing thing it is when I've been in all kinds of churches in the process of church planting. It's funny because uh, I would get up and speak in the process of telling people about the church plant. And I'd have this pit in my stomach, like I'm going to some little rinky dinky church. It's probably going to be so lame. And I would show up there and it was amazing. There might only have been a small number of people there, but it was very evident God was there and there was just a sense of unity. And and then I went to other churches where I expected it to be amazing. And it just seemed so, I, something was off. And I think there's just something that when you show up at a church, you can tell if there's a healthy culture there. I love what Ray Orland calls about, I think he calls it a gospel culture, 
that the gospel is not just something that we preach, but it's actually embodied in the way that people treat each other. Where, again, as I said earlier, right, there's plenty of space for people to struggle. There's just an ability to be real and honest. So there's a lot more things, but I would say those three things, a focus on Jesus, healthy leadership, and somewhat of a gospel culture where it's just clear there's unity. There's no perfect church. Every church is flawed. I could give you a list of the flaws in our church, but I think those are the things that really matter the most. I love that you talked about the critiquing that we do. Like I do that if, you know, at our own church, if we have the opportunity to visit another church, I seem to be immediately able to name off 10 goofy things and, or, oh, you know, groan, oh no. I have that critical stance, but I've had the exact same experience as you Then when the worship service actually begins and I'm sitting in a pew or a chair or whatever with other people it slowly goes away. And I remember why why we're there and what that means. I love Dorothy Sayers, her whole thing of, you know, when we worship, we really need to be wearing helmets because worshiping God is a day, like God is actually present when we gather to worship. And these, I love, again, mashing that with the C.S. Lois quote, like, you've never met an ordinary mortal, right? The people that we go to worship with, not only are we meeting with the living God, but these are people who are bought by him and who are going to be glorious one day. So it's an incredible privilege, even if it looks humble most of the time. Yeah. What about size of church? Because I do think still there can be this idea that bigger is better, but that hasn't necessarily been my experience, I don't think. It's interesting because I won't mention his name, but a prominent Christian leader was a big defender of mecha churches. And he said, really, all churches are amazing. There's pros to being big and pros to being small. I talked to him about, I think about a, two years ago, and this was after most of his megachurch high-profile friends, many of them anyway, like a significant number of them had, had fallen. And we've heard these stories, right? Especially the States. And he began to say, I actually think, although there's strengths to being large, There's also unique dangers to being large that aren't felt in the smaller church. So I'm not here to say bigger is better or bigger is worse, or I just say like, man, bigger actually has a set of unique challenges to it that I would not want. I think small has also a set of challenges, but they're not challenges of being proud. And I think there's a lot to be said for grace flows downhill, right? Grace goes to the places that are lowly. And there's something about being small that is a disadvantage, but also grace flows there. And the one thing about being a small church is you can't get cocky, which I think is a huge advantage. Being a humble church, Karen, I've candidated to churches and I've run from them because I've sensed that there's pride in that church. And I think God opposes pride, right? He gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. As long as we're proud, and not every big church is proud, but some are, as long as we're proud, God just opposes those churches. So I really like small, humble churches because I think that there can be proud small churches too. But if you can be humble, whether you're bigger or small, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, that's so good. So another one of your habits is engage the Bible. And I noticed right away that you don't say read the Bible. You said engage the Bible. So unpack that for us. I think we all know that we should be reading the Bible, but help us understand that better. 
One of my goals is the Psalm 1 life. Psalm 1 is kind of the gateway to the Psalms where it talks about blessed is the man who meditates on the the law of God day or night. And this it presents this picture of there's really two ways to live, only two ways. One is meditating on God's word day or night, which is basically all the time, right? And the other way is is to go along with the wisdom of the world. And it says Basically, like if you live this life of really meditating on God's word, it will lead to flourishing. I talked to a friend of mine, and he is known for being wise. And I said to him, well, I think we were just talking one day. And he said, people ask me why, you know, where do I get my wisdom from? And he says, well, it's pretty simple. And I'm super intimidated by this. He majors in the book of Proverbs. He's actually memorizing it in Japanese, which is where I get super intimidated by Wow. <laughs> but, you know, he just says, and he says it, it just comes out in circumstances all over, right? He's got this wisdom that comes from being in God's word all the time. So a lot of people don't, most of us aren't in the word of God. If you look at the stats, if you look at the Bible engagement survey that the EFC has done, which is really helpful, I just think it's so important to build that into our lives. And it doesn't have to be a lot. I think it has to be consistent, imperfect, but just regularly being in the Word of God and then building that pattern where we're actually thinking about it and applying it to our lives. So it's it's what I think we should all be aspiring to. And in your previous book, How to Grow, you talked about connecting habits with habits, I think. So uh, if you're going to eat lunch, then when you eat lunch, you read the Bible or or some trick like that that's helpful. Is there a way to kickstart our Bible engagement, which I guess we can be listening to scripture as well, right? There's so many apps and so on. So if you're a person right now who hasn't been doing that, what's your suggestion for getting started again? Yeah, find find something small. And I think find something that works for you. You know, the commute, it's a great way to listen, to put it, uh, find an audio Bible. And there's some amazing apps right now that have um, great narrations of scripture. I'm so hesitant to get, be prescriptive. I was part of a panel one time and the person just, I taught on habits, like reading the Bible and prayer. And the pastor brought up these eight people and said, okay, what does it look like in your life? And all eight of them had different answers. So in a sense, they were all doing the same thing, but it looked very different for all of them, right? Somewhere in the morning, somewhere in the car as they commuted, somewhere at night, right? Somewhere three minutes, somewhere you know, an hour a day, just becoming a student of what works for you and taking your personality into account and tailoring it for you. You know, that is so refreshing because I think when people have this idea that it has to look a certain Instagram worthy way, a daily quiet time or whatever you call it, that can really be discouraging when your personality does not lend itself to that. Yeah, I told Charlene a few years ago, you need to follow the Bible Project Bible reading plan. I was really enjoying it. So she did. And she came to me and she said, "You three months later, she said, you've ruined my devotional life. <laughs> you took what was working for you and imposed it on me and it just doesn't work for me. So yeah, it's, it's so crucial to give each other permission to uh, really tailor it to our lives. Yeah, that's good. And permission to rest. That's another one of your habits is rest and refresh. And it strikes me, and in my own life, I've experienced this with Sabbath keeping, which is only something I've gotten pretty good at in the last few years. It seems to come down to me trusting God that there will be enough time to get all the things done. How important is that? 
It is so important. I don't know if it's a Toronto thing. I think it's not, but Toronto is certainly bad for this. We are all in such a dreadful rush. I don't even think we know why we're in a rush. It's just a way of living that we're frantically rushing around all the time. So I'm sure it, it is like that everywhere to a certain extent, but you know, it's actually seven days a week. As a friend of mine says, it affects everything. You know, we spend three days kind of living out of the rest we've had on the Sabbath and three days anticipating the rest that is coming up. This beautiful image of God does not measure us by what we do. But the Christ- I think of Adam and Eve, right? Day one, after they're created, what are we doing today? It's like, well, rest. <laughs> they hadn't even worked yet. And their day one was rest. What a picture of the Christian life later on that we begin out of this rest. And out of that rest, we we actually do for God. The other days of the week, there is work for us to do, but it's living out of that rest that everything else comes. So um, Karen, I don't know why we struggle with this one so much. We love vacations. I'm in mourning right now because uh, summer is over. And as the fall goes on, I just love summer, right? I like the slower pace. I don't know why it is that we struggle so much with the idea of Sabbath when we're also starved for vacation and for time off. And yet there seems to be something in us that has a hard time accepting God's gift of rest. Just saying, you don't need to do today. It's enough for you just to enjoy and to be. And that's all you have to do today. It's an amazing gift, but it's hard for us for some reason. Yeah, that's a very good point about vacations, actually. Like when I, I love vacation and I always struggle to come back to work and I love my job, but I grieve the end of vacation. And and you're right. The Sabbath is like this built in weekly vacation that we could, we should be really embracing. It is funny that we don't. Yeah. It's, I tell people it's 52 days a year of basically vacation, right? So if your boss came to you and said, hey, would you like an extra 52 days? That's, that's 10 weeks of vacation next year. We would all be like, okay, what what's the catch, right? But God has given us basically these this 10 weeks every year where we just get to enjoy. So for me, Sabbath is no obligation. That's basically the only rule, right? Do things that renew you. And if you feel like you have to do something, automatically it's off the table. So no obligation, just pure enjoyment. What an amazing gift that God yeah. gives that to us. That's good because that that's also removing the um, cookie cutter template of what Sabbath looks like, similarly to your Bible reading ideas. Because what I find relaxing on Sabbath, sometimes like I enjoy, for example, a neat environment in my home. So if I clean our bedroom on Sabbath, that's not Sabbath breaking for me. That's creating peace and calm in my home which I enjoy. But for someone else, that would be work, right? Yeah, it's. I like to think of it as what makes you feel alive. And and so it's different for all of us. I know this is a, that it's hard to believe we had this fight, but it used to be growing up, you know, is it okay to play sports on the Sabbath day, whatever, or on a Sunday, which is many people see as a kind of a Christian Sabbath. And I think the answer is, well, it depends. Does it make you feel alive? Does it make you feel God's pleasure? And if if doing that, does then by all means so yeah i think whatever it is i i think it's just a general um piece of advice i forget who came up with it but if you have a very like a desk job where you're in front of a computer all week you probably need something physical to do on 
your rest day, right? And if you're working all day in a factory or doing very physical labor, you might need to, you know, just find a good lazy chair and sit down and and read a book or whatever. So, and I, I think even that can be too prescriptive. Just find what works for you. One thing, Karen, by the way, I found is I found with almost everybody, uh, screen stuff does not make you feel more alive. I think it's a good escape, but it's kind of pseudo rest. And so gaming or Netflixing for a day or scrolling social media, I don't want to say that it's it's wrong, but I find most people, it doesn't give them the rest that they're looking for. It's where we all default to these days, but it might not be giving us the rest that we really need. Daryl, thank you so much. There are eight habits in the book. We've only talked about three of them, but I think it's so helpful and practical for people. Where can they find you online? Yeah, the best place is uh, Dash House, D-A-S-H-H-O-U-S-E.com. And also Dash House is my Twitter and Instagram handle. So people can definitely find me there. Wonderful. Thank you, Daryl. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.